Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. This episode features a lecture on Stoic philosophy, CBT, and behavior change from Tim LeBon. The talk explores how CBT and Stoicism can be combined to improve mood, create lasting changes, reduce anxiety and worry, and offer practical solutions for living a meaningful life. Tim is a UKCP-registered psychotherapist and writer on Stoicism and Practical Philosophy. He is trained in a number of approaches including CBT, Existential Therapy, and Philosophical Counselling. Enjoy the show! What is cognitive behavioural therapy? What is Stoicism? But, but then more on how can it help with behavioural changes? Uh, and, and then could either or both of them help them help you with your desired changes. Okay, so we'll probably revisit that later to see uh, how we are. So, <laughs> New Year's resolutions. Uh, how many people here made any New Year's resolutions this year? Don't be shy. Uh, keep your hands up. Now put, okay, put your hands, keep your hands up. And then put your hands down if any of those new resolu- any of those resolutions has already been broken. Uh, okay. Now put your hand down if you're uh, if you're 100 confident that you're going to keep all your New Year's resolutions this year. Keep your hand up. Okay. So half a dozen people have done that. Why are you here? <laughs> you clearly got the answers. Uh, no, uh, to be serious for a moment, uh, I, I've actually written a blog article uh, against New Year's resolutions because I, I think there are much better ways of changing behaviour. Uh, but uh, they work for some people. So look, this was a, a, a recent YouGov poll that said that the most New, Year, New Year's, the most popular resolutions were them. Eat better, exercise more, spend less money, etc. So have a look at that list and just... Because what I'm interested in is, is, as I said, is helping you think about the behaviour changes you want to make. So have a look at that list. Any, any shouts out for any of those? Just, just put hands up. Who wants to eat better? Yeah, quite a few of you. Exercise more. Spend less money. <laughs> Why are you here then? Uh, get more sleep. Why are you here then? <laughs> Read more books. How oh, you come to the right place? Okay, so... Uh, now, that was actually done in America, uh, and this was one done uh, in 2014 in the UK. Uh, notice any differences? Uh, so it looks like exercise comes top. It looks like there's a bit more about helping other people, volunteering, time with family, uh, raising money. Now, whether that's a, a, a cultural difference or a time difference, I don't know, but... There seem to be more on the altruistic stuff uh, for the UK in 2014 than for America last year uh, or this year. 
according to the surveys. Okay, now this is my data. We are beginning to talk a little bit about, about evidence and whether, it, uh, whether there's any evidence for any of the things we're talking about today. Uh, so the evidence about New Year's resolutions is not that good. So only a quarter of Brits who made New Year's resolutions have kept them all. And that's according to what they say. <laughs> you know, someone comes along to you and says, have you broken your New Year's resolutions? You might, you might not be completely honest about it. Anyway, and it looks like, well, let's look at the, this is the data. So uh, it looks like about 30% uh, the resolutions go by the wayside almost immediately. <laughs> Uh, and then by the end of Jan, it's about 60-something. And then it's by May, it's reached that half-life where most people have broken some of them, and it gradually trickles off. But the 27% who keep them all... Uh, so, so, yeah, so some people can make lasting behaviour change. How is it done? It's a good question. Uh, so... So that's one type of, of, of behaviour change. Now... I, I, I've invented this category, by the way. If you looked up, emotional behaviour change isn't something that you'll see talked about. But I was thinking that, you know, the people that come to me in my role as a CBT therapist, uh, they don't generally talk about all those things that you do in New Year's resolutions, unless there's some kind of emotional difficulty. Usually, they're kind of, it brings up anxiety, uh, they're making changes, and, and they need some help with that emotional side of it. So those kind of things. So just a show of, hand, a show of hands with some of these. Who would like to procrastinate less? Good. That's going to be our little case study. Who would like to be less irritable, angry or frustrated? We're going to talk about that as well later. Uh, less worrying. Less of a perfectionist. Uh, less surfing the internet, junk TV, social media, etc. Uh, being more confident socially. Uh, and the last category, overcoming a mental health problem, uh, such as panic attacks, phobias, compulsive checking, or depression, uh, that is something that you definitely might be sent the way of a therapist for. Uh, what I'm going to be saying today is that this is all kind of a continuum. So some of the same ideas that, that, that would work for people who are really depressed or have panic attacks, uh, you'd adjust them, but, but some of the same principles would apply for people with, with more, more moderate uh, problems. Uh, and all behavioural changes involve emotional changes. Do you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. If you think of making a behavioural change, it'll bring up an emotion. If you make a behavioural change, it'll probably change your emotion. So, so in a way, this category is a little bit artificial, but I just wanted to bring out that there are kind of some things that would be a bit more emotional than a typical New Year's resolution. Uh, what about ethical behaviour changes? Mm. Uh, helping other people. I'm not going to ask how many people want to do this, because everybody's going to raise their hands for everything. <laughs> who, who, wants to, who wants to actually do these things? Uh, help other people. Be really rational. Be things that the best version of, of me would do. Uh, do the right thing, even when I'm afraid or tempted. Uh, do the wise thing. Being a virtuoso at living. Uh, if I said being more virtuous, what would be the kind of reaction to that? Think, hey, I'm not sure about virtue. Uh, but so it's a, it's a phrase that, that the Stoics uh, used 
And so I'd like you to, to reconsider, go with an open mind, a beginner's mind with this term virtue. And it might help to reconceptualize it as being like a virtuoso at living, living really well, or being an excellent human being. Now, you might think that uh, the emotional changes could be done by CBT, and the ethical behavior changes could be done by stoicism. And who knows about New Year's resolutions? Uh, maybe, maybe one or either or both. Uh, let's keep an open mind. Let's see whether it's clear cut as that. Uh, so, <laughs> it's your lucky day. <laughs> that genie is a good genie. And uh, he or she is offering you uh, three behaviours that you could change this year. Now, these are the rules. Genies always, there's always a catch, isn't there? Uh, so it has to be something possible, and it has to be something that you do. It's not like win the lottery. It's something that, that, that you, it's actually kind of more or less under your, under your control. It might be obstacles, but it's something that, that you could do. So what would you do? Think of three behaviour changes you'd like to make this year. And if you want, uh, have a little chat with your neighbour. If you want, it might be a good time to introduce yourself. Uh, and and uh, just something that you'd like to change. And remember, it could be a New Year's resolution, it could be a more emotional, it could be a, uh, a more ethical being a better person. I'll just give you about a minute for that. <laughs> particular genie is in a bit of a hurry, so uh, it's going to stop you there. Uh, so, can we come back together? Uh, I'll just take a few, a few of the wishes. So, if, if people can sh uh, shout out one of their behaviour changes and also their name. So, and I'll, I'll write it on the PowerPoint. So, any behaviour change? Just anyone? Peter. Yep. Community behaviour. Okay. Well, what sort of community behaviour do you mean? I really don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Peter. Who else? Uh, Victoria. Sorry, where's Victoria? Okay, and it's uh, meditation. doing meditation. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Victoria. Couple more. Yes. Annette. Annette. Being proactive. Being proactive. Fantastic. And let's just take one more. Your gentleman behind you now. Uh, to take us to that money plan. 
Dan. Sam. Sam, sorry. Um, take responsibility for mistakes made. Okay. Okay, I just made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> the irony, the irony. Uh, it wasn't my fault. Uh, uh, so which uh, which category are they? This category that we've just made up, really. Uh, ethical, yeah. Uh, oh, that's an interesting one. It could be, could be, could be ethical. It could be kind of New Year's resolutiony thing. Again. Depends whether it's the kind of for ethical purposes. So it sounds like it sounds like it, what an ethical bunch you are. Well done. Uh, okay. Uh, so I'm just going to spend, as I said, literally two or three minutes on positive psychology before we come on to CBT. So positive psychology. Uh, hands up, anyone that read anything about positive psychology? Uh, hands up anyone who's read my book on positive psychology. <laughs> <laughs> in all good, in all good books, down like from Google. So, uh, this is one of the things that those of you who've read my book will know the answer to. Uh, but this actually, uh, it's a really interesting uh, study uh, done by Richard Wiseman. And what he did was he, uh, by the internet, he asked about 500 people who were trying to make those kind of big changes in their life, dieting, cooking, smoking, etc. Uh, what strategies they were using? And uh, these were the ten most popular. And uh, the question is, and then he contacted them months later and said, how's it going? Did it work? And he was, by the magic of uh, statistical analysis, he was able to see which ones seem to be helpful and which ones not helpful. So, uh, as I go through these, just, just for yourself, make a mental note of which of these you think are good ideas and which of them are probably not so good ideas. Some of them are, some of them aren't. So, uh, make a step-by-step -step plan, motivate myself by focusing on someone I admire for achieving so much, uh, tell other people about my goal, think about the bad things that will happen if I don't achieve my goal, think about the good things that will happen if I achieve my goal. Uh, try to suppress unhelpful thoughts, reward myself for making progress, relying on willpower, recording my process, such as in a journal and fantasizing about how great my life will be when I achieve my goal. So, uh, we haven't got time to go through all of them, but the answer is that uh, the ones I've crossed out are not very helpful, and the ones that are still there were found to be helpful. So in fact, only the odd number strategies. So these are the ones that were found to be helpful. Uh, so, uh, so, if I was working with someone coaching or CBT, uh, we'd do some of this stuff as well as the very specific things we're going to be talking about later. So we might make a step-by-step -step plan. I'd encourage people to tell people about the changes they were going to make. Uh, we, I'd ask them to think about the good things that will happen if they achieve their goal. Not fantasizing what's going to happen, because then we tend to become complacent. So it's if I do this, if I put in the hours, if I meditate, then I'll be kind of much, much more pleasant than I want to be. Uh, rewarding myself for progress and recording your progress. So that plan might be dynamic. Uh, and for more positive psychology tips, in uh, not very many bookshops actually, you can get on that. Uh, okay, so uh, how are we doing so far? Good. Uh, so uh, we're going to uh, 
spend about 40 minutes on CBT and behaviour change. Uh, I'm not going to be saying a huge amount about CBT in general, though I could, and if any of you grab me in lunchtime, I could probably bore you to tears about it. Uh, so, uh, anyway, look, these are two of the gentlemen who kicked it all off. Uh, Albert Ellis and Aaron T. Beck, a psychologist and a, and a psychiatrist in America in the 50s and 60s, independently, so the story goes, they were working, they were psychoanalysts, they were finding that the people who were coming to them uh, were, some of them weren't making much progress, and Beck talks about a lady who was saying that actually the thing that was uh, making her anxious in social situations was that she thought she was boring people. Hold on. So this is about what people are thinking currently, what their beliefs are currently. Maybe you don't have to do uh, psychoanalysis to access these things. Maybe they're not immediately accessible. Maybe you have to ask people to record data or to uh, ask them the right questions. But you might be able to find out what their beliefs are, their current beliefs, that are maintaining the problem they come with. And that might make more progress. What a good idea, in my opinion, that was. But it wasn't an original idea, because Epictetus, from whom we'll be hearing more anon, said, it isn't events themselves that disturb people, but the judgments that they make about them. Does anyone know, recognize that picture? Death of Socrates. Yeah. Death of Socrates. So Socrates, actually, in that, in that quote from the Enchiridion uh, or, or handbook, uh, Epictetus goes on to say that, uh, talk about the death of Socrates, and says that uh, even death itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, it's how you view it. Because uh, Socrates viewed his death with equanimity. Uh, so what's not the event itself, it's how you view it. Uh, it's your beliefs about it, so the lady with social anxiety, was she really bored? Uh, if she was boring, perhaps there was something she was inadvertently doing, uh, and from CBT we know that's usually being self-conscious, that means that you don't come across as well as you'd like. So you can work on the vicious cycle of what is currently maintaining the problem. And as I said, it's an idea from Epictetus, and usually uh, in CBT, if you ever do a CBT course, they will mention that quote, uh, and then move on. Uh, which is really what, uh, what, what, what's, what CBT what CBT is now. So I'm not here saying that CBT is only stoicism. I'm saying that CBT started with a stoic idea and then uh, done lots of scientific research, lots of emphasising a behavioural approach, lots of uh, working out what, how to understand particular problems, uh, and I think also uh, CBT is kind of more for specific problems and Stoicism is for life. Stoicism isn't just for Christmas, it's for life. <laughs> Probably not for Christmas, actually. Uh, so, uh, so, is it true though? Let's see. Let's do a little experiment here and now. So, does how we really, uh, how, does how we think really affect what we feel and how we do? So, uh, whatever you currently think about dogs, I would like, just for the next uh, minute, this side of the room, uh, to imagine that you believe that dogs are fierce and dangerous, okay? Dogs, fierce, dangerous. This side of the room, whatever you actually believe, I'd like you to imagine that you believe that dogs are cuddly and lovable. 
Okay? Fierce and dangerous, cuddly and lovable. Now, with those emotions, you don't have to write it down, but think about what you're likely to experience and what you're likely to do with those beliefs if you see this. If you see this in real life, uh, <laughs> 10 yards ago, 10, ten yards away. Uh, so, fierce and dangerous, cuddly and lovable. Uh, so, the fierce and dangerous side. Uh, what would you, what emotions would you feel? Fear. Fear. And what would you do? Run. Run. Okay. And the cuddly and lovable, oh uh, yeah, the nice advice this time. Uh, what would you, what would you feel if you, if you saw Lucy is her name is. If you saw lovely Lucy just coming towards you, what would you feel? Lots of, lots of happiness. Lots of happiness. And what would you do? You'd cuddle Lucy. And she'd uh, lick you back. Yeah. Uh, so what can we learn from that? Uh, well, what we think and what we believe does seem to affect, at least in that case, how we feel and what we do. Okay? Uh, so could this principle change any of our behaviours? It's something that for this CBT uh, work, we need to think about. Is there any belief you have at any level that, that is uh, maybe uh, getting in the way of you making this behavioural change that you want to make? Uh, <laughs> Some of you may have seen this before, you're already laughing. Uh, this is the two minute version of Bob Newhart on Stop It. And I'm going to, I promise the clip, this is the clip you're definitely going to see. Uh, uh, because uh, if you go too much down the behavioural route, without thinking of the thoughts, uh, you could get a rather uh, ineffective therapy like this. Uh. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic? Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, you find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, you're there. Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. Then stop it. I, I can't. 
pants. I mean, it's been with me no, since. No, no, no. So, behaviour change uh, made easy, but, but too easy. Uh, and yeah, it's worth Googling Bob Newhart Stop It, and there's a, there's a kind of longer clip you can make, sure. So, it's good comedy, but lousy therapy. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, what we believe affects how we feel and often affects what we do. Uh, now, this is just a. Okay, in CBT, you get lots of diagrams, and that's because generally uh, you're doing this with clients, and clients usually uh, respond better if they can see, see, see diagrams rather than just talking about it. Uh, so, so we'll be using a few diagrams today as well. Uh, so, supposing someone is thinking, I'll be criticised, how would you feel? Anxious, most likely. Uh, would you avoid it? Well, not necessarily, because you might think you can cope with criticism. But if we add to the idea that I'll be criticised, the idea that I can't cope with the criticism, we're quite likely to avoid. Does that make sense? And supposing that your behavioural change involves something where you might be criticised, one way or another, uh, if you had both those beliefs, uh, it might well mean that you couldn't do the behavioural change. Uh, I think this would be the opposite of the Bob Newhart thing would be the Nike thing. Just do it! <laughs> Just do it! <laughs> Just do it! Uh, uh, so, what we have in CBT then are, are two levels of, of uh, thinking. One is an automatic negative thought, which is very, uh, very situational. It's in this situation I will be criticised. And then we have things called underlying assumptions, which tend to, uh, we tend to hold them across various situations. Does that make sense? So this is an automatic negative thought, I'll be criticised in this situation. And this is a more general belief that I can't cope with criticism. Make sense? And we might need to focus on both of those. There are different techniques used for, for them. Uh, this one you would tend to use a thought record. This one you would tend to use a behaviour experiment. Now, I'm, from my clinical experience, uh, I would suggest that for behavioural change, it's these, what I'm calling interfering assumptions, interfering underlying assumptions, that will mean we can make the behavioural changes we want to make. Uh, let's see if that makes any sense. So, <laughs> uh, you've probably seen this before. Uh, assumptions make an ass out of you and me. <laughs> and what we're saying here is that some assumptions might stop us making changes. Uh, so, if we were trying to get to, to grips with the behavioural change you want to make, and using CBT, we would try and map it out using probably a five-part model to start with. Uh, so it's, what's the situation? What is it you're trying to change? What do you think? What do you do? How do you feel? What's going on in your body? And what are the consequence of this? And you see all the arrows pointing everywhere? This is because actually they're all interconnected. Uh, so it's not just that how you think affects what you do and how you feel, it's the other way around as, as well. And it's kind of a, a holistic system rather than too linear. Uh, so that's what, that's what you'd be doing. Uh, and let's consider a hypothetical case study of Jen. Jen is a procrastinator. Uh, some of you are procrastinators. 
so what we're going to do is we're going to look in a bit of detail at procrastination, but I think that uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about can be applied more generally and rather behaviourless. Uh, so, uh, so first of all, we'd understand it using the five-part model. Uh, so I'll talk you through this. So Jen is writing a dissertation and she's spending a lot of time on social media. How many people here spend too much time on social media? Yeah, I think that would be a really good New Year's resolution. <laughs> Cut down on social media, if we could do it. Uh, so why does she do that? Uh, uh, well, she would say she feels demotivated. Uh, and then, and then we said to, we'd say to her, and this is something you can try yourself, imagine yourself not doing the thing you, that you want to do, uh, or doing the thing that you don't want to do, and imagine yourself as like a, uh, in, in a graphic novel or a cartoon, what would be the thought bubble that would be in your head that drives that emotion, the emotion that is, that is kind of getting in the way of the behaviour? Does it make any sense? So this is, this is the emotional change, because the, uh, being demotivated is getting in the way of her of her uh, writing a dissertation. So what is the thought? Well, Jen tells, we don't know what the thoughts are, you know, we, we have to ask. And uh, Jen tells you that, uh, well, what she thinks is, I'll do it later when I feel more like it. Okay? Uh, and then we say, is that all that's going on? What happens, do you ever feel like it? So, okay, occasionally I feel for my own, like doing it. And then what happens? Because you told me you haven't written anything in your dissertation for the last week. Well, then she says, the thing that comes up is another thought, which is, it needs to be really good, because it's a dissertation, it's not just a, an essay. Uh, so I've got to be on top form before I start. Does that make sense? Have anyone ever felt like that about any task? You've really got to be on your A game. Uh, so she feels anxious. So she's got a little cocktail here of uh, uh, demotivation, anxiety. She feels flat when she's demotivated, tense uh, when she thinks about how good it's going to be and tired, and she's tired of all of this, and it may be affecting her sleep. Uh, so what does she do? She avoids, she carries on avoiding, and what are the consequences? Well, eventually she's going to run out of time. And what's going to happen then? She's going to get more anxious. Uh, and the lack of motivation, it may be, oh, I just can't do this, I might as well give up. Uh, so could we, can we see how, and this is often called a vicious cycle, so uh, can we see how uh, this probably isn't going to fix itself unless, unless, unless uh, either the situation changes and the genie comes and says, hey, Jen, now here's the degree, you don't need to write a dissertation. Uh, or, or better, uh, we need to, to tackle these, these uh, thoughts that get, are getting in the way of her doing her dissertation. Does that make sense? Good. So, uh, so overcoming procrastination using CBT. So, <laughs> this is Jen. Uh, I will work later when I feel more like it. Uh, so every time she thinks she's going to do it, she ends up on Facebook. Uh, so we, as a CBT therapist, now I'm talking, uh, you could do this two ways. So if you went to see a CBT therapist, then the CBT therapist would help you do this. Uh, you can do CBT as self-help. So you can try and do this on, on your own. Uh, so you could be, uh, the Charlotte Holmes character here, and uh, ask yourself, what assumptions are interfering with Jen working? Well, one of them is that. You agree? Yeah? That is, because she thinks I'll work, work later, she rationalises. Anyone else rationalise? Yeah. Uh, so we need to change that assumption. Uh, 
So, but what, what is kind of the underlying assumption? And remember, we're looking for these assumptions that, that are not just in this case, but in general. And here it is that she's assuming that you should only do something when you feel like it. Who, uh, who else believes that? Yeah. Oh, who doesn't really believe it, but sometimes acts as if they did believe it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that could be the case. So it may be that Jen says, well, kind of in my head, I know, I know, I know that's not the case, but I'm still acting as if that's true. Uh, so what do you do about that? Well, we're going to talk about behaviour experiments in a minute, which is like the gold standard for what you do with these, with these underlying assumptions. But before that, uh, you might just have a chat. Uh, you might think, aha, uh -huh, uh, Jen is putting the cart before the horse. That's the cart before a horse. Uh, because of, often action has to come before and not after motivation. Does anyone agree with that? But once you start, you get going. Okay, now if I was talking to a client and they nodded and said, yes, of course that's the case, they would be saved the, the lawnmower story. But as some of you might not be convinced, I'm afraid you're, you're going to have it anyway. Uh, so, the lawnmower story. Uh, don't expect Bob Newhart, but hey ho. Um, so, this is, this, is a, this is a true story. So, uh, I came home from work one day, some time ago, uh, very tired. It had been a long day. I got up early, come home late. It had been a tough day. And I slouched onto the couch and the thought entered my head, oh, let's do nothing. Oh, and then another little thought popped into my head of uh, the cupboard full of junk food, the remote control, junk TV. Uh, anyone identify with this or is it just me? Uh, but then I, I remembered what I, what, I, what I tell people and I thought, hey, I don't feel like doing anything. But if I, if I go with my impulses, what's going to happen? I eat junk food, that's not going to be very good. I watch junk food, it's going to be a good waste of time. It's not going to go well this evening. What should I do instead? And uh, sitting at home on the sofa, we've got some fringe windows. And uh, outside, uh, not exactly that, <laughs> but getting on for it. So I thought, oh, you know what I should do? I should mow the lawn. It, wasn't, it was May or something, so it was quite feasible to do that. Did I feel like mowing the lawn? Uh, so, a little trick that, that perhaps will help you as well is the idea that you take the first step. Baby steps! Uh, so, uh, so, what was. So, it's two things there baby steps and relying on motivation to come after, not before that baby step. So, I got myself, got myself on my backside, got myself out, and I told myself, look, I'm just going to mow the bit that's most visible. <laughs> And at least I won't get in trouble with the, with the boss. <laughs> and that kind of motivated me a bit. Uh, and, uh, and I did it. And guess what? Absolutely, uh, as would have been predicted, as soon as I started going, what do you think happens to my energy level? What do you think happens? Energy level goes up. And then I saw the bit more, and I, I did a bit more. And yes, reader. I wrote the whole lawn. <laughs> so uh, that's the lawnmower story. <laughs> so uh, what can we learn from the lawnmower story? That uh, 
It's about, about being a continuum. This isn't just about people who are depressed. We talked about this with people who are depressed, but it's not just about people who are depressed. It's all of us who are kind of thinking, I'll wait till I feel about doing it. Uh, so if we had that discussion with Jen, uh, she might well... Uh, she might not overcome that first interfering assumption, which is that uh, she'll wait till later. But uh, as, is, as is often the case, uh, it's not simple as that. <laughs> so Jen has this other assumption, which is it needs to be really good, so I must be on top form before I start. Hmm. On my A game. It's got to be really good. Uh, so we might still have this discussion, and uh, she might be kind of convinced that... So you could do thought records, thought records, where you take that thought, you look at the evidence for you look at the evidence against, you come up with the balance view. But she might say, well, I kind of see that, but, you know, it's, it's, there's still a nagging doubt. So whenever you, you notice in yourself or other people this head heart lag, you know that you've got to, you've got to do an experiment. You've got to, the proof of the pudding is in the... Uh, or not, uh, because it's an experiment. You don't actually know whether that's true or not. So this thing about behaviour experiments, you get into Sherlock Holmes mode, uh, or perhaps the mode of a curious scientist, and you put your beliefs to the test. Uh, so forty beliefs often do need to be, uh, to be uh, challenged behaviours, and sometimes just thinking about it and talking about it, or even. I'm afraid to say my lawnmower story, sometimes even that isn't enough to, uh, to get people to change. So what are behaviour experiments? Uh, they're things you do in therapy, or obviously you can do them outside therapy, where you put your beliefs to the test and you find out what's true and what isn't true. So how could we test Jen's belief? So that's the belief, remember, yeah, that we're testing, because we've assumed that the lawnmower story and whatever has persuaded her. Uh, that, that she can make a start even if she doesn't feel like it. But she's got to, she's got to think that it's not just that I feel like it, I've actually got to be really on top form. Do you get the difference? Subtle difference between feeling like it and, and really being, you know, so maybe it would mean that, you know, she'd had a little bit of disturbed sleep, that would give her another excuse. Uh, so how <coughs> could you do this? Well, uh, you discuss it with Jen or, and you'd uh, maybe come up with this experiment. Every day for a week, Rate out of 10 how good form she's in. Uh, write something, send it to your supervisor, and ask for feedback. Do you see how that's a little experiment? But, you know, she might put, uh, felt 4 out of 10 good, supervisor said this was fine. In that case, that would kind of uh, shed some doubt on this belief. Uh, if that experiment feels too daunting, then you could test it out uh, on other tasks. So in other words, you, you've got an assumption. You don't have to test it out, particularly on the problematic behaviour. So she could see if she could do a Sudoku puzzle when she's not on top form. Does that make sense? You're trying to see whether it's true that you need to be on absolute, on what she feels is top form to do something that she feels is, is, is difficult. Uh, and she might well find it's good enough if she's not on top form. <laughs> what? What? If you're being a little bit uh, inquisitive, which I hope you are, say, what would happen if she doesn't find that out? What would happen if she finds out, you know, that uh, she can't, she gets bad feedback, or she can't even do it, uh, or, or she can't even do the puzzle if she's not kind of got 
So good night's sleep. Well, then you go into problem-solving mode, which is another thing that, that you would do, and you might have to look at how to improve their sleep. Uh, now, what you'd hope to be getting is what we call a virtuous cycle. Uh, so she's still writing a dissertation, but she's now thinking, if I take a baby step, I will then begin to feel like it. Is that feel logical, based on what we said? And if the paper experiment turns out uh, positive, then uh, she might well be thinking and actually believe it, not just kind of say it, that, yeah, I can, I can do good enough work, even if I'm not an absolute tip-top form. Now, if she has those thoughts, instead of feeling demotivated and anxious, she'll feel somewhat more motivated, more hopeful, less anxious. She still might be a bit anxious, but that's fine. Uh, She'll do some work, even if she doesn't feel like it, and even if she isn't on top form. And the consequences will be, she'll spend more time writing it. As she, as she gets more positive feedback, she'll get more confident, uh, and she'll get closer to her end point, and uh, we'll have changed a vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle. So, uh, so to summarise, look at the interfering, work out what's going on, Focus particularly on the interfering uh, assumptions. Uh, think about whether they make sense or whether actually there might be a more helpful assumption to make. Uh, pros and cons might work. If you're not fully convinced or, or, or still not sure, do a behavioural experiment to test out the belief. Uh, now, a lot more can be said about designing and doing behavioural experiments, and I realise that we only had a short amount of time. The good news is uh, that there's a video on it. Uh, the even better news is I'm not going to play it now, because it's not as funny as Bob Newhart. But it is, it is good. Oh, the other bad news is I'm, I'm doing this particular video. So this is, this is, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, so Talk Plus is the name of the, uh, the NHS IAPT service in Hampshire, where I, where I do my work on Mondays and Tuesdays. And what we've done is uh, uh, produced a, a whole suite of videos on how to do CBT aimed at clients or, or people that just want to change. And uh, we've made them freely available. So you don't have to live in Hampshire. Uh, you don't have to register with any GP or anything to get free access to these videos. All you need to do is uh, you do need to register. Uh, but there'll be no adverse... So it doesn't ask, what's your name, what's your GP surgery, and stuff like that. Uh, there'll be no adverse consequences from doing that. It's just so that we know, as a service, that people are using the videos. Uh, or not. Uh, so, so I'd invite you, if you're interested in this, to, to, to have a look at that later. Uh, and it's even got some uh, supporting documents. So it's got a PDF of, of uh, the PowerPoint that's on behavior uh, experiments and a sheet where you could record what you're doing. So uh, let's just have a little think about uh, other cases, maybe cases that you might have of behavioral change. And, uh, the experiments that you might do in those cases. So, uh, suppose I want to lose weight, uh, and my assumption, we've done the detective work to, to elicit the assumption, and my assumption is, if I'm hungry, I need to eat what's in the cupboard. Uh, what, might, what might an experiment do? Anyone suggest an experiment? Throw the cupboard away. <laughs> so that would be changing the situation. So there's all sorts of things you could do. You could, uh, you could change what you do at the point of purchase when you've got more self-control. Uh, you could 
so you're going to give the money to charity every time you do it. Uh, so there are, there are other things you could do, but if you're trying to test this assumption with an experiment, how could you do that? So you're actually saying, is it true that I need to eat uh, when I eat what's in the cup, I junk food when I'm hungry? How could you test that out? Yeah? Are they hungry? Sorry? Are they hungry? Am I hungry? Mm. Okay. Uh, so how would that work, that you would ask? Well, if they're hungry, they're probably not their appetite satisfied, so they're probably not eating that. Okay. Okay, so you could ask, actually, is it really hunger or is it comfort eating? Mm -hmm. Okay, that would be, that would be a, a, a good thing to do as well. Yeah? You could eat something not sourced from the cupboard and see if it satisfies you. Okay, I like, I like the sound of that. So all the, all the things that you said are good. In terms of the behavioural experiment, I think if you said, next time I'm hungry, Maybe you could, do, you could eat something, yeah, I don't know, put uh, something healthy in, in view, eat that, and see if that satiates your appetite. Uh, you could just delay eating, because we know that, you know, it's like a wave, isn't it, our, our appetite, usually, unless we're really, really hungry, it will just go down after time. So you could say, yes, I'll eat something healthy, you could say, well, I'm going to delay eating for 10 minutes and see what happens to my hunger. And those were the experiments to see if it was true that you really need to eat what's in the cupboard. Does that make sense? And it's kind of that, that curious approach. You don't actually know uh, what's going to happen. So if you as a therapist said, uh, oh, just, uh, just delay eating for 10 minutes and that will work, what would happen if it didn't work? If you were, if you were to kill my, my, my client and I said that, yeah, you'd lose confidence. And actually, you don't really know. So we're being, it's called collaborative empiricism. We're working together and we're trying to see what really is the case. Uh, okay, uh, what about the second one? Someone wants to drink less and they think, if my friends are drinking, I need to be drinking alcohol as well. What would be an experiment there? Okay, so how, how would you do it? Or how would you set it up as an experiment? What might you do? <coughs> So is this something you do deliberately between sessions, or, or if you're not in therapy, to just try it out? Uh, yeah? Speak to your friends beforehand. Okay, good. Good. So you could say, actually, let's test this, this hypothesis. That if I talk to my friends and tell them that I'm doing a, a dry January, January, February, uh, then they won't pressurise me. Or maybe if they, even if they do pressurise me, I'll resist it. So, so you wouldn't avoid... Uh, going out with your friends to test that out. You'd actually go out with your friends, but see if there was some way, uh, maybe some way of thinking of it or some, some way of talking to them. So for instance, you could, you could tell them you're doing dry January, you could just uh, uh, drink lemonade and uh, face the abuse, which I know is a friend of mine, and I'd definitely get some abuse from if I did that. But, but that's another thing, uh, particularly when we come to stoicism, we'll, we'll, we'll be considering that very seriously. Uh, uh, we're not affected by the events, we're affected by our view of them. So we might be able to choose to kind of ignore or make, make, make lighter of what our friend calls us. Uh, okay, so that's the summary of using CBT to change your behaviours. Uh, understand your own vicious cycle, detect the assumptions interfering with your desired behaviour, consider the pros and cons of adopting, adopting these interfering assumptions, find realistic and helpful more alternative assumptions, so we did it in those the cases of the normal story. Uh, motivation sometimes comes after action and breaking into baby steps. Uh, you may well need to test things out using behavioural experiments and look at the talk plus video to find out more about that. 
and then you're moving towards a virtuous cycle. Now, obviously, things aren't always... <laughs> I think it's as simple as that, you're probably thinking, as simple as that, my God, this is too complicated. But, you know, people are complicated. So, remember we had that vicious cycle, uh, of, uh, which had body as well, and automatic negative thoughts. So sometimes you might have to work on those. Uh, so if it's just an automatic negative thought, you usually do a thought record, challenging the thought. If it's something to do with going on in the body, you might uh, do relaxation techniques, maybe meditation. If it's a sleep problem, there's quite a lot of good work being done in sleep hygiene and what to do and what not to do to get to sleep. But my tip from clinical experience, if you're trying to change behaviour, is to, to really focus on those pesky interfering assumptions. Uh, so, uh, before we uh, finish the CBT, and we're going to have 10 minutes for Q&A in a minute, uh, I have to mention this, because otherwise, I'm, if any of my colleagues were watching this, they would say, Tim, what have you done? You talked about CBT and you haven't mentioned the most important thing. So, uh, a lot of the research that's come out where it says CBT is, is pretty effective, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's pretty effective, uh, for a lot of disorders, uh, comes from what's called disorder-specific treatment for things like depression, worry, OCD, panic attacks, phobias, health anxiety. Uh, and what that's, what's happened there is that uh, researchers have gone and looked at what is different about people who are, say, depressed or worried to the average population. They constructed models that then says, okay, so people who uh, are worried tend to have, uh, tend to be intolerant of uncertainty, and they tend to avoid doing stuff when perhaps they should be doing stuff, uh, and worrying is even seen as a kind of avoidance strategy by some researchers. So you get an understanding of what's going on, you then see if it fits that individual, because it's not a one-size-fit-all, uh, and you might have to do an idiosyncratic formulation, uh, but what this does is it gives you a map. Yeah? So, uh, CBT therapists will have a map for each of these disorders and they kind of use it to try and help you. Now, so if you've got, if, if your problem behaviour was any of these, involved any of these things, then uh, what we've said about uh, the behaviour experiments and pesky assumptions might, might still be true, but you might get quicker, you might get there quicker uh, looking at these. Uh, that's the worry tree, uh, uh, that's diagram from, from my book on positive psychology. Uh, so I won't go into it in detail. Uh, it's actually an area where CBT is actually quite similar to stoicism. Basically what you're doing is you notice that you're worrying, you ask yourself what you're worrying about. Is there anything you can do that's helpful? If there is, you do it or plan to do it. If you can't, uh, that's where you have a, you know, there's quite a lot of experiment going on to see how you can neglect the worries that you can't do anything about. Uh, so this in itself, this, this branch can be quite a lot of work. And then you let the worry go. So that uh, can be really helpful for people who've got a problem with worrying, for instance. Uh, so, and again, uh, on the Talk Plus website, we have a 10-minute talk uh, on the worry tree and on other things to do with worry and depression. So, uh, let's do our 10 minutes Q&A. Before that, uh, if you want to read more about CBT, the chapter in Achieve Your Potential is a kind of says what I've said today but kind of goes beyond it uh, and that's the URL for the Talk Plus videos. So look, you can ask whatever you like. These are some suggested 
questions. What do you like about this? Could it help you? What doubts do you have? Any practical questions? And I'm inviting you, if you want to email me now or later, you can email me, change at timlebond.com. It's not my normal address, but it's, it'll get to me and then I'll, I'll be able to know things coming from this particular uh, uh, session. Uh, and as I said, this presentation and the, the later bit as well will be there eventually. I can't say exactly where on my floor. So, over to you for 10 minutes. Hi there. So, the assumptions, isn't it a bit, a little bit difficult to identify the assumptions because they're subconscious automatic assumptions in your brain? Right, really good question. And your name is? Anthony. Anthony. So, does everyone here answer this question? That isn't it hard to identify them and are they subconscious? So, this comes back to Beck and Ellis and their thinking that we don't always or don't usually need to do psychoanalysis for these kind of problems. So although they're subconscious, they're not unconscious. So by talking to someone, you can find out what they are. So if we go back to Jen, uh, I would ask her, so uh, what I'd like you to do to Jen is to close your eyes. If she couldn't tell you immediately, I'd say close your eyes and, and uh, remember the last time when you were sitting down to do your work. What was going through your mind or what stopped you working? And uh, sometimes then, by uh, remembering how they were, then uh, the memory will come back. If it doesn't, uh, and this is an important part of CBT, you might say, okay, the home practice for this week is to note down how you feel next time. You're, uh, you, so actually this could be a kind of another no-lose experiment. You know, either what we talk about will help you do your dissertation, or if it doesn't, uh, become aware of the obstacles. Now, there's another thing which is important, which is that sometimes what comes up isn't this kind of right level of the underlying assumption. Sometimes it's just a kind of a top-level thought. So then you do something called the downward arrow, which you say, so what's the worst thing about that? What's the worst thing about that? What does that mean to you? Why does that matter? And eventually you get at something in the force of assumption. I don't know if that helps you So you're saying just talk about it, and then those subconscious... Yes. Yes. Um, uh, assumptions will come up yes. consciously. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as the unconscious, but I'm saying that having used this approach with lots of people and other people have, it seems to be, for, for very many situations, people, this works. You might, as I say, you might well have to get them to, to, to kind of close their eyes and remember or to jot down the next time it happens. Uh, but yeah, that's the basic, basic idea. What else? This is the bright spear. Thank you, Phil. Um, Tim, um, I have heard the opinion expressed that CBT, or specifically REBT, uh, does work in all cases. This comes from you saying it doesn't always work, CBT doesn't always work. So I've heard the, uh, the opinion expressed it does always work, setting aside cases like schizophrenia or whatever. Um, and the only cases it doesn't work is where people don't take the medicine. In other words, they choose not to apply it. Um, can you think of any other cases where it, why might it not work? Well, uh, therapists may not be particularly skillful. Uh, the therapist might be quite skillful, but there might be some reason why 
they don't get a good working relationship together. You can, you can get very talkative clients, sometimes, you know, it's not that some, some clients don't like structure. So there's a whole, uh, there's articles been written about, you know, the ideal CBT candidate, and it includes things like doing homework, but it's also, uh, it's also things like uh, being comfortable with structure, being able to have a, be, be in a team. So as a CBT therapist, I'd say, like, I know about CBT and these kind of problems. You know about your own life and what you want, and we need to work together. So maybe I'm that category of, of not such a good therapist, but my experience and, and, and colleagues is that uh, it doesn't work for everybody. And I think that's quite an important thing for two reasons. One is because if I was a it's going to be really important. So, uh, so well, I don't really, I'm not an expert on addiction, I, I would encourage people to pursue other specialist uh, treatments before CBT. That's my answer. Absolutely. That's a that's a that's a brilliant point. So what's your name? It's Rabia. Rabia. So that's what Rabia says. Uh, so yeah, so CBT is, is one of the good reasons why, you know, it really isn't someone's fault if CBT doesn't work them. You know, sometimes uh, they've just got a lot of stuff that they want to talk about. Uh, and uh, or maybe they're they're at that stage where they're not quite ready to change. So something called motivational interviewing, I don't know if one of the other speakers might be talking about that uh, later, but uh, it's, a you know, it's a specific set of uh, tools where you would work on the motivation. Uh, so that would be uh, something that we do a little bit as part of our work. If we were there's motivation issue, we'd use some things from motivational interviewing, but it's not, not pure simply. Okay. So that's a really good point rather than, yeah. One more? One more, yeah. Thanks. <coughs> I've read somewhere that um, MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive yes. behavior therapy, can be more effective. You did mention earlier that um, anxiety can get in the way of change. Yeah. Have you any? Have you come across any evidence that that this is the case? That mindfulness-based cognitive therapy will often work where, where CBT doesn't. Okay. Uh, thank you. And your name is uh, James. James. So James has often asked a really good question. And there's a whole group of third-way CBT therapies that involve mindfulness and uh, commitment to valued action. So there's ACT, uh, there's MBCT. Compassion-focused therapy is Chris here yet, Chris Irons. So Chris Irons, do stay on for Chris. He's a brilliant speaker. Everybody stays for Chris. He's going to talk about, if he's not here yet, I can say that uh, maybe compassion-focused Focus therapy is a third wave CBT therapy. You probably wouldn't agree with me, but uh, there's this whole cluster. Uh, uh, now, the, the, I'm, I'm really interested in all of those approaches, and I've done some training in, in, in most of them. And actually, I think stoicism could be another one of these third wave CBT therapies. If we look at the evidence, uh, it's not quite there yet, certainly not for MBCT. The evidence is, uh, last time I looked anyway, that mindfulness based cognitive therapy in general is recommended for people. Uh, who are, uh, who've had, I think it's two or more episodes of depression, and they're not really depressed at the moment, and doing some mindfulness can then make them less vulnerable to relapse. That's what the evidence says. Uh, and you can see why that might be the case, because it's about noticing it before it, it really starts to, starts to kick in. 
So in terms of anxiety disorders, uh, it could be true that some people uh, for whom CBT doesn't work for one reason or another, it could be that the mindfulness approach might, might work better, absolutely. Uh, but in general, uh, I, would, I would go with CBT for, for anxiety. And I think it's because CBT has got these, particularly if someone is clearly suffering from one of those very specific anxiety disorders like OCD, uh, phobias, I think CBT has got a lot, a very good track record, and it works for many people. Think, sorry. Okay, so that might be a discussion for the, for, 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 for the break or whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely not against MBCT or any of the therapies, but in terms of what, what, what the nice guidelines are and what the evidence says, uh, uh, that it might change. It might change in a few years' time. Maybe based on what the evidence is rather than you know whether it works. Okay, so as I say, feel free to email me. Uh, but now uh, we're back to the plan. How are we doing? 50 minutes left according to that. Wow, we're on schedule. <laughs> what a great audience. Uh, I didn't think we'd ever be on schedule. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to talk about Stoic philosophy and behaviour changes. How many of you uh, are interested in Stoicism? <laughs> question to ask, isn't it? How many of you know quite a lot about Stoicism already? Okay, so less. Uh, now, uh, Oh gosh, the learning outcomes. So let's look at these. Do we know what CBT is? Yeah. Do we know how it can help with behavioural changes? Uh, do you think CBT could help with your desired behavioural change? Let's have a show of hands. How many people think that what we've talked... I mean, you might not necessarily have all, all, all the details on exactly how to do it, but how many of you are interested in, in CBT helping? Something. Born again, evangelical stoic. Uh, because really, uh, my my own journey into stoicism. Gosh, I am sounding like it, am I? Uh, let, me, let me tell you. I need to I need to show a bit of this with you, just so you understand where I'm coming from uh, with stoicism. So I studied philosophy ages ago, and I read probably Bertrand Russell on stoicism. Who kind of said, yeah, this is quite interesting, but this, but that, probably saying a lot of these things, that, you know, you have a stiff upper lip, you're oppressing emotions, it can mean you're too passive, you're too resigned, you'll just be isolated, I am a rock, uh, uh, but that is stoicism with a small s, and what we're talking about is stoicism with a, a big s. Okay, so back to, uh, how did that change for me? <laughs> so, uh, it wasn't that long ago, it was five or six years ago, I got this email from somebody called Professor Chris Kiel from Exeter University saying, uh, do us all along, would you like to come along to a seminar we're running about whether Stoicism uh, could have any impact in the modern world? And I thought, okay, why not? Uh, uh, I went along, I said to Chris, and there's a small bunch of us there, so, you know, six or eight of us, I said, look, I'm not really a Stoic, but, uh, and he said, okay, that's okay, we, we, you know, you're not a Stoic. Uh, uh, and in fact, it might be useful having someone who's not so kind of uh, partial. Uh, I said, but what I do know about, a bit about, is positive psychology and what they do there to test things out. And they were very interested in kind of doing an impact analysis where people would uh, see, if, see if stoicism actually worked. So I was the guy who was kind of one foot in in terms of the stoicism. Uh, but became part of the project, part of the team, because 
I was the guy who would be there with his spreadsheet, uh, doing all these surveys and analysing the stats. I'm really sad, I love it. But there you go. Uh, but a strange thing happened. As I got to read more about Stoicism, find out more about Stoicism, I found out that it wasn't quite what I thought it was. Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, so what Stoicism is? What Stoicism is really about, uh, biggest Stoicism, is uh, living as an excellent human being would, ethically, virtuously, like the virtuoso living. Having rational judgments. It's definitely true that part of Stoicism is being very rational. That bit isn't uh, a caricature. Uh, feeling the appropriate emotions, giving rational judgments about what matters most in life. Uh, that's actually... Uh, you have to find out what the Stoics think matter most in life before you know what the appropriate emotions are. Because actually, uh, Stoics think that what matters, what really matters most is, are these things. And that uh, everything else, like health, wealth, reputation, is what is sometimes called a, uh, a preferable or preferred indifferent. So it's a nice to have. You'd rather have it than not have it. But if you haven't got it, then uh, you can still... Uh, they probably say be happy, perhaps using happy in a slightly different way to we would use it. You can still lead a good life. Uh, so, uh, so that is, well, I'll obviously talk a lot more about what Stoicism is in the next uh, half an hour. Uh, but a key point is that it's not, so it, it can help with facing adversity as well, absolutely. But it's not just about that. Uh, so, we come back to. Uh, I told you I love the spreadsheets. This is what emerged from it. Uh, this year, so every year, we do something called Stoic Week. Has anyone here taken part in the Stoic Week? Phil? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, you can do it next, usually it's October or November. Uh, and it's free, you can just enrol online, you get a free handbook, written by the, the great Donald Robertson, who, uh, if ever comes to this, this country, maybe he'll get to speak at Wigan University. Uh, so Donald, I've known for a long time, and he is, he is the go-to guy with, with this Stoicism stuff. So he really is a Stoic, I'm just a kind of born again semi-Stoic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a word for this in Stoicism, it's called a procoptin. It means somebody making progress. Uh, I'm definitely not there yet. Anyway, so this year we got we asked people if they were kind enough to fill in a re, uh, 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 another survey. So their surveys at the beginning of Stoic Week uh, We've designed a, a questionnaire which measures how stoic you are, big S, uh, and you get a score, uh, and also how happy you are, and various well-being scales, life satisfaction, flourishing, uh, positive and negative emotions. This year we also did one on positive character traits. Do any of you know the, the VIA in positive psychology? Yeah. Uh, so we didn't use that, we used something called the Civic, uh, uh, which I think is, is very similar. And, uh, that's what we found. So at the start of Stoic Week, people filled this in, and you can, you can correlate how Stoic people are with how much they've got these qualities. Does that make sense? So, you know, do the people that score high for Stoicism score high or low for bravery? Well, you think so. For persistence, you think so. For kindness, you think so. For fairness, you think so. For self-control, you think so. So what we found was, very, these, are, these are incredibly high correlations. And... Uh, so, you know, we, we had a really large sample, you know, several hundred people. These correlations cannot be by chance. Uh, but the amazing thing was, for me, the top 
correlation, the positive trait most associated with being stoic was zest. Who'd have thought it? Uh, and yet, William Irving has written a book, uh, which I think is called uh, The Good Life and Stoicism and, and Joy, or something like that. So, so there are things in the literature which suggest that if you're stoic, you will feel enthusiastic and uh, full of energy. Uh, and uh, so if we think of, of, of Jen and our kind of experiment, maybe if she was being stoic, she would feel more motivated. It's really interesting, and I'll just say this uh, partly to uh, really endorse the fact that it's not just about facing adversity well. So Socrates wasn't, wasn't you know, a stoic as such, but the Stoics looked to him as uh, incorporating a lot of Stoic beliefs, and they looked at him as a kind of sage, a Stoic role model. So, meet the Roman Stoics. Uh, so, uh, big three, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus. Uh, those are the, some of the books that uh, I'd recommend, uh, if you're interested in them. Uh, and all walks of society, Seneca, top level, he was kind of like an essayist. I was reading on anger recently, and it's a brilliant read, Seneca on anger. Uh, it's an easy read and a brilliant read. Epictetus was a slave who was later freed, and uh, so he's a kind of, uh, he is a bit of a preacher in a way, Epictetus. So, you know, it's a slightly preachy style, but, but very kind of instructive. So he's the kind of, he's the guy, uh, I think he's Donald Robertson's favourite because he's the guy you go to for the techniques. Uh, you go to Seneca if you want someone who's kind of a good read and kind of perhaps a little bit more pragmatic than Epictetus. Uh, and then we've got Marcus Aurelius, who in his day was the most powerful person in the world. And uh, so he was emperor, one of the good emperors, and uh, he, uh, he wrote, it was like a journal. How many of you keep journals from time to time? Uh, he kept a journal. As far as we know, it wasn't meant for public consumption. And it was his like day book about uh, how he could become a more excellent or better person. Uh, and it survived, it was published as in Meditations, and uh, it's well worth a read. So those are the Roman Stoics. Uh, modern Stoicism uh, is the name for this kind of group of people who uh, I'm part of the team. Uh, that was the report I was talking about on Stoic Week, which uh, the latest article published, a strong positive relationship, that's what I was talking about. Uh, but there's lots of other articles written by members of the team, but also members of the public. There's loads of free stuff there, uh, com if you're interested. Uh, and here's a selection of books, get your cameras out. Uh, so these are some of the, uh, some of the books uh, written by uh, people who are either Stoics or interested in Stoicism. Uh, so uh, that's Donald's book, one of Donald's books. Uh, that's a really good book. Uh, Massimo uh, Piglucci, How to Be a Stoic. He's also got a good blog. Uh, uh, Antonia Macaro. Is Antonia here? I think it might be. Antonia, hello. Uh, so uh, speak to Antonia if you're interested in the connection between Buddhism and uh, Stoicism. Because she just written a really good book just out on it. Uh, more than happiness. So, uh, so in other words, there's lots of, lots of stuff written on uh, Stoicism. Now, this wasn't true 10 years ago. 
20 years ago. So it's, it's, it's had something of a moment. Uh, this is something I could bore you about for hours, but I'm just going to bore you for two minutes. Uh, so we are building up an evidence base for Stoicism. Uh, two big questions. Uh, do the attitudes and behaviours help you flourish? And do the practices actually enhance well-being? Uh, and the answer to both is yes, or so it looks like it. All of this, all of this research is a bit provisional, pilot studies, we need to do more, kind of, more rigorous tests. But look, we've been doing it for about four years, and it's very consistent results. Uh, and we are finding that the people who sign up for Stoic Week, uh, how stoic they are, is very strongly correlated, not just with the, the positive character traits, which I was talking about earlier, but with flourishing, 0.47. Emotions, 0.43. Even I satisfaction, 0.36. Uh, so the more stoic you are, it seems that, on average, uh, the happier you are. Uh, uh, and this is really hot for the press, this hasn't even been published, uh, but uh, when people do Stoic Week, the results from this year, we had nearly 3,000 people taking part, and this was the increase in, in well-being that they got, because they took the measures at the end of the week, at the beginning of the week, this was the, uh, the increase. Now you might, and they, they increased in being Stoic as well, so we think that it's not just you know, you'd say, well, Tim, this isn't really very convincing because they're a self-selecting sample, true. You know, if you do anything for a week and you put up time in it, you're probably going to say you feel better. That's true as well. But when you look at the picture as a whole, there's a strong association between the being stoic and well-being that people actually do seem to increase in their stoicism as well as these. You think, hmm, it looks like being stoic probably is part of the thing making the difference. Uh, Donald's got this uh, course called SMRT, SMART, which is a longer course, it's a month, focusing on stoic mindfulness and resilience, and we found that there the impact's even bigger, and for the first time, again, hot the press, not published yet, but it will be soon, we did the first uh, study which looked to see whether this would all melt away after three months. You know, sometimes, you know, you read a self-help book, you feel great for a day, and then three months later, you've forgotten it. Anyone had that experience? Yeah. Well, what was interesting about the people that had done Donald's SMART course for a month, uh, the ones that filled in the surveys anyway, uh, it didn't melt away at all. The, the, the impact on their well-being was pretty much the same after three months as it was after they finished the course. So their well-being went up, and it stayed up. So that's uh, really, really promising. As I say, there's a lot more work to be done, uh, but... Uh, so this was, you know, back to me as the born again semi stoic. Uh, uh, that's one of the reasons because it just it just seems uh, that the evidence is coming in that it's helpful. So uh, we are going to talk about behaviour change and stoicism. Uh, I've, I've just introduced stoicism very generally to start with. Now I need uh, to preface this by saying that the version of stoicism I'm going to give you is. Uh, is a personal one that not everybody who's a modern stoic would share. And uh, it's a kind of simplified stoicism. There's things in stoicism like that says things like the cosmos is a wise living thing, which I'm not quite sure if that's true. So that kind of sounds that metaphysical and more religious stuff as well. Uh, you can believe that if you want. It might even be helpful, but what I'm saying is that version of stoicism I'm going to talk about today that might help you with your behavioural change doesn't assume any of that. 
those kind of more metaphysical things. Uh, but, and as I said, this is my personal take on Stoicism. It's not like I'm just making it up. Because uh, Marcus Aurelius actually said something that uh, is very much along the lines of the, the kind of Stoicism I'm going to uh, uh, tell you about today. So he said, this is what you need. Objective judgment, now at this very moment. Unselfish action, now at this very moment. Willing acceptance, now at this very moment, of all external events. Not everything, but the external events. That's all you need. Those, that will become clearer as, as, we, as we talk about it. But uh, come back to that later, because that is, in a few sentences, the Stoicism we're going to learn about today. Uh, so, uh, how many people are familiar with the Serenity Prayer? Okay. How many people like the Serenity Prayer? How many people think that the Serenity Prayer was completely invented by AA and Reinhold and Okay. Because although the Serenity Prayer was, uh, actually the idea was there in Epictetus. And looking in his handbook and you'll see this there, which is very much like the Serenity Prayer. But this is just the first phase, or the first version of what I'm calling the Stoic Fork today. And again, it is sometimes referred to as a kind of fork, because uh, it's not a great fork, that, is it? That's the best I could do. <laughs> uh, so this thing, there's this idea called the dichotomy of control, which is there are some things that are under my control, and there are some things that aren't in my control. And if I try to focus on and to work on the things that aren't really under my control, what's going to happen? How am I going to feel? Frustrated. And how effective am I going to be? And how good is my behaviour change going to be? It's not. Uh, whereas if I focus on things under my control, then I'll feel I've given that zest and effectiveness, and, uh, and I can make effective changes. So, that's kind of one idea. So we can look at the dichotomy of control in a kind of very pragmatic way and say, you know, so the, coming back to my person uh, who's got a problem with junk food, they might say, well, I can't control myself when I'm, you know, the food's in the cupboard, uh, but I can control myself more when I'm out shopping, when I'm not hungry. Does that make sense? So they might, they might use this to kind of... Uh, engineer themselves to not buy the junk food when they're out shopping. So that's a kind of a fork where you're using the idea that I'll, I can control myself in this situation or that situation and then do something that's probably quite sensible. Okay. That's one kind of very pragmatic way that you could use this idea. Uh, and I'm not against that. But the Stoics have a rather specific take on it. Because they believe that uh, the things under, not under my control the past, do you agree with that one? Yeah. You can't control the past. You can change how you feel about it, your judgments about it, your attitude to it. Uh, other people. Ooh. So how does it go usually when you try and control other people? Well, this is a more debatable one, I think, because we could say that there's a third category of things that you can influence, but not totally control. Uh, but you know, the Stokes took a pretty hard line on this and said, no, you can't control other people, and the only person you can really control is yourself. Uh, your reputation, what other people think about you. So again, this would be of very great relevance to the person who's socially anxious, worried about what other people think about them. Stokes say, 
Forget it. You can't control it. It doesn't matter. Or at best, it's one of these preferable indifference. People will think what they will of you. And it means that as long as you're doing your best, that is, that's fine. Uh, and fate. So, as I said at the beginning of my talk, uh, you know, uh, I hope that uh, the video works. Fate permitted. That's a very stoic thing to say. It's something we haven't got complete control about. Uh, so these things aren't under my control. So I just accept those. Uh, accept that. And what I focus my attention on are the things under my control, which are my judgments, uh, rather like the beliefs that we were talking about when we were looking at CBT, but particularly the value judgments we're making, and whether something's good or bad. Uh, what we do, uh, and, and our emotions. Uh, now, the reason that they say that the emotions are under our control is uh, because, remember right when we were talking about Epictetus, and the emotions depend on the judgments? So actually, if you manage your judgments well, then you're going to manage your emotions pretty well. Now, there are some exceptions there. Uh, and Seneca talked about these things called first movements, which actually correspond quite closely to, you know, to what neuroscience knows about fast-track events going on in the amygdala. Uh, so Seneca was onto something when he said there's bits that just happen really subconsciously and you can't control them. But the real promotion proper, the thing that turns kind of a, kind of a little impulse to get angry with really being angry is involves judgments. So that's the first version of the dichotomy of control. And here's, and as I said, this can be really useful just, in, just on its own. That's really nice. And here's a personal example. Uh, personal example, in my days when I was less of a, I don't know, I was probably a, a tenth stoic then, or semi-stoic, uh, and uh, I lost my wallet. I was mugged. I was going to a conference in a few days, uh, and uh, I thought of this. I thought of you know, this kind of stoic range of wisdom. What can't I control? Well, couldn't control the fact that it happened, couldn't, couldn't control what the other person had done, and fate might conspire even that I can't, you know, maybe I couldn't even go to the conference. Uh, but what I could manage was my judgments about it. So uh, I could say to myself, look, this has happened, it's not the end of the world, and there's no point dwelling on, you know, how more careful I should have been. Uh, but I can control my actions. And what actions would I do? Well, having got a bit calmer by doing that, it was really obvious what I had to do. Bring up a bank, arrange for cars to come pretty quickly because of my travel, uh, etc. Uh, and once I'd done that, my emotions calmed down because I was going to take control of the situation. You know, once the bank said, you know, for the bank, every day, every moment, they get someone reading it on. And so, yeah, thank you, Mr. LeBon, you know, the cards are cancelled, you won't be in the card or anything. Uh, and we'll send, the, we'll send it to you next working day or whatever. So it was actually all okay. And the surrender, so that's a real example of where this kind of uh, stoic principle number one was of a great help. So just have a think about whether this could help you with any of your behavioural changes. This idea of... of if you can't control it, just let it, let it be. You know, if it's, if it's this category, uh, stuff about the past, stuff about other people, stuff about what people think about you, stuff about how things turn out, don't focus too much on that. 
focus on what you do, uh, how you think about things, thinking about things rationally. Uh, do, do you think that that could be relevant in any way to your any changes you want to make? Yeah, just as I don't know if talk about one. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that emotions are under, under my control. Absolutely. Um, I hate to bring up the gender difference, yeah. but you do have the thing of women who are subject to hormones yeah. 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 and yeah. Um, patients who, are, who suffer hormonal diseases, yeah. Yeah. Um, so pituitary yeah. disorders, for yeah. instance. Absolutely. No matter what they do in yeah. their life, yeah. Can, can we say that for the Q and A? Actually, you hold on to it yeah. because it's a really good question. Yeah, okay. But here, I was just really after after anything. So do, do come back to me on that. I think it's really cheaper. Any anyone where people can think of things that they want to do that are that, that this might be helpful for. Anyone who's got just I just use one or two examples. Mm -hmm. Or not? Okay, yeah. Um, this is a very relevant case in point for me. Yeah. Decades ago, through a very traumatic divorce, I was handed Seneca's letters to Lucidio. And it was a godsend. And I'm not religious. <laughs> so, so that's a really good thing. And the judgments, just looking at a different perspective, different yeah. cultures, different yeah. realms, different domains. I can't control the courts, but I can control certain so that really kind of almost the situation. It's fundamental to be able to separate the two out. Okay. Uh, now, the second version of, of the historic thought incorporates something called stoic mindfulness. What on earth is that? Well, it's paying constant attention to my judgments and making them more rational and ethical. Ooh, that's a tall order. How, how many people have done that in the last hour? Paying constant attention to your judgments and making them more rational and more ethical. How do you do that? Uh, so, well, or what is it, first of all? Because it's not the same as Buddhist mindfulness. So these are the two questions we ask which kind of measure it in our survey. I make an effort to pay continual attention to the nature of my judgments and actions, and also when an upsetting thought enters my mind, the first thing I do is remind myself it's just an impression in my mind and not the thing it claims to be. It's just a thought. We all have thoughts that don't necessarily represent reality. Uh, and again, our research says that that's one of the key active ingredients, very highly associated with the, the virtue and, and well-being. So how do you develop it? <laughs> so I was a little bit clever here in that I realised that I'm not the number one world expert on how to develop state of mind. This, but I know a man who is, and his name is Donald. <laughs> but, so, but, so what I did was I said to Donald, look, would it just be doing the morning state meditation, the evening state meditation, and reflecting on the dichotomy of control, using your self-monitoring sheet? And he said, uh, uh, yeah, it would be those things, but it would also be uh, watching for the early signs of emotions like anger, uh, and reminding yourself of important state principles. How could you do that? Well, you could use post-it notes, you could uh, have reminders on your phone, you could have illustrated quotations from Stoicism. You might be seeing a few of those in a minute. Uh, and uh, that was good. Then he said something else which I thought was, well, this is interesting. He said, uh, the aim is being to cultivate a sense of being observed. Imagining your thoughts are public. 
doing everything as if a wise teacher were watching you. So I got to do everything imagine Donald was watching me. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. We can kind of address that in the Q&A. But it does, it does. And I said to him, well, what about flow? You're never going to get into that kind of flow if you think that. And then I remembered, of course, flow is one of those preferable indifference. If this helps us be a better person, then kind of being in total flow might not be so important. So, uh, if you uh, do Stoic Week and download the Stoic Handbook, it'll, it'll give kind of recordings and things about how to do that. This is my three-minute version of it. Uh, by the way, if any of you are thinking, when is he going to get on to behaviour change, uh, it's a question that Wittgenstein would about this. It's a question you kind of got about unasked, because for the Stoic, it's not really about behaviour change. It's about character change. And if you change your character, if you became that person who was really self-controlled, wise, courageous and just, how many of your New Year's resolutions or behaviours you want to change would, would change accordingly? Yeah? So that is a stoic approach. It's not so much about, uh, let's look at the specific behaviour. The true stoic approach is saying we need to change character and through that everything else will flow. So everything I'm saying is, I hope, relevant to behaviour change. Uh, so how to develop stoic mindfulness? So uh, I had a bit of fun the other day uh, in... Uh, Paint and PowerPoint. <laughs> you can tell me whether, the, whether you like these or not. So, uh, these is, so there's this idea that you do an early morning meditation, stoic meditation, and uh, for about 10 minutes, one version is that you just sit there, think of the day ahead, think about the challenges you face, think of what might go wrong, and think of how you can approach it in a stoic way. It's very called negative visualisation. Uh, I love Marcus Aurelius' version of it though, because it's. I'll read it out. Uh, this is, remember, is the most powerful man and person in the world at the time. Say to yourself in the early morning, I shall today meet ungrateful, violent, treacherous, envious, uncharitable men. All of these things have come upon them through ignorance of real good and ill. I can neither be harmed by any of them, for no man will involve me in wrong. Nor can I be angry with my kinsman or hate him, for we have come in the world to work together. That's quite subtle, that, because he's not saying, look on the bright side, it will be all right. He's doing the opposite. He's saying, look, I'm good. people are going to be irritating today. Uh, and uh, they really are. You know, they really are going to behave in certain ways I don't like. But they come about it through, it's not because they want to be like that, it's because they, they don't know any better, really. So... Uh, so, you know, if you, if, you, if you think of something like young children or babies, you kind of think, well, I'm not going to be angry with them because uh, they just don't know any better, don't know any different. So this kind of gives a kind of understanding, but also I can't be harmed by any of them. Because remember, the only thing that can harm me is myself in virtue. And actually I can think of them as a test. I can develop my patience by dealing with that person who's different. Uh, but there's another idea, which is that we're all together, you know, like, like limbs on a body. We've got, we should think of ourselves as connected with other people. So they were one of the first cosmopolitans, Stoics, thinking of kind of a brother and sisterhood of, of humanity. So you could, you could have that. You could have that very thing at card if you want, and look at it in the morning and say it to yourself. That's a, a one possible morning meditation. This is a self-monitoring Stoic record sheet, where uh, a bit like a CBT form, 
but you uh, look at the thoughts you have, the feelings you have, and whether things are up to you or not, and whether what you did was beneficial. That's a kind of becoming more aware of, uh, of how you're approaching things, whether it's in a stoic way. Uh, so, uh, you know I said that one way to develop stoic mindfulness was to have some kind of stoic post-its, or posters. So this is a, this is a number of them. Uh, so, uh, Marcus Aurelius, stop debating, debating what a good person should be and just be one. Remember, that was to himself. Uh, Epictetus, some things are up to us, up to us are what is, is our own action, not right up to us are whatever is not our own action. Uh, if you say that to yourself and actually put it in practice, you might get a serenity from going there, uh, which is a lovely waterfall. <coughs> Canada, <laughs> uh, we've done that one. Uh, and just a couple of minutes on Seneca and Anger, which I mentioned as being a great book. So you might, as part of your... Uh, Trying to change behaviour through uh, seeing if Stoics can help, you might read some of the ancient Stoics. And Seneca and Anger is a great place to start. Here are some select passages. Uh, do you agree with this? The sword of justice is ill placed in the hands of an angry man. Uh, he called it a temporary madness. I think it's quite helpful actually, quite helpful to think anger is a temporary madness. Because when you become angry, you see things so differently. No plague has cost the human race more dear. Uh, this is another kind of little trick to imagine how you look in the mirror when you're angry. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and in terms of uh, changing what you do if you do get angry, because remember we're all progressing, well, remember that the greatest remedy for anger is delay. So if any of you want to become less irritable or angry, this is probably Seneca's top tip, or one of his top tips. Uh, so, not necessary to pardon the offence, but so you can form a right judgment about it. Have you ever noticed that? When you sleep on something, unless you're dwelling on it in a very different <coughs> way, uh, you'll wake up the next day uh, feeling rather different about it. Uh, we fly into a rage, we put the worst construction on it. So, uh, later we should plead their case, keep our anger in abeyance, a punishment which has been postponed, may yet be inflicted. <laughs> so you can still do the right thing, but once inflicted, cannot be recalled. Uh, okay, so that's a little bit from on anger. And then uh, we, so remembering, this is what we do as part of our stoic practice. We do our morning meditation, uh, we do stuff in the day to be mindful of all these stoic ideas, and then we do the evening meditation, uh, which goes like this. So again, these aren't the same as, as, as Buddhist meditations. Uh, some people do things like this anyway, but this is the... You know, in, in, in positive psychology, there's this thing where you do what went well, which is really good. You know, three things that went well. Well, uh, stoicism is positive psychology plus the difficult bits. <laughs> so you've got, you know, the second one is what did I do well? But the first one is what did I do not well? What mistakes I made? And this is important, condemn, not yourself, because this isn't to pick yourself up, uh, but the actions, and do in a moderate and rational manner. Uh, so it's kind of, what can I learn from that? We're all kind of fallible human beings. Uh, and also, what was left undone? So what could I have done better? So the idea is that you go through the day, and, uh, or key events in the day, 
Well, the benefit of that is clearly that you're going to then remind yourself of, uh, of how to live well, but also kind of make a mental, have a mental intention to do better next time. Uh, so that's the second version of the Stoke Hawk. The third version is, uh, in many ways, the hardest bit, because it's, uh, it's saying that we need to do the virtuous thing using the virtues of wisdom, courage, justice, and self-control. Self-control, particularly if we need to accept it. Uh, courage, particularly if we need to do something. Uh, so, I've talked about virtues. Those are the core virtues, the cardinal virtues for Stoics. Obviously, there's lots of sub-virtues, like those positive conscious I was talking about. Uh, and they're all kind of connected. So, this wisdom is in the biggest letters, because it's probably the most important. But actually, the Stoics believe that you need all of them, and, and it's hard to have one without having the others. Uh, and furthermore, your intentions matter more than the outcome. So, uh, the archer. Think of yourself as an archer. So, uh, the best way to approach life, the Stoics suggest, is to think of yourself as an archer, who does their best to fire the arrow well, but accepts that once it's flown, it may well be blown off course and miss the target. Your attentions are like preparing to fire the arrow, but the outcome, like hitting the target, is beyond our control. You see how that could apply? You do your best. If fate means it doesn't work out, don't worry about it. You've done your best. Uh, why is Stoics important? Uh, because we're short of time, I'm going to have to gloss over this a bit. Uh, I had a really interesting... <laughs> Uh, dialogue with C Professor Chris Gill, who introduced me to this, where I played the part of every man, and he played the stoic. And we kind of, it was kind of genuine as well. Uh, and he kind of convinced me, actually, that, uh, that, that, that if you're virtuous, uh, then uh, actually you make the best use of these preferred indifference. So I gave the counter example, you know, don't I just want to have a nice evening out with my friends? And he said, yeah, but if you're not just not self-controlled, and not courageous, and not wise, that's probably going to mean you can't do that, or can't do it reliably. And that applies to everything else. So the virtues are, are really very important. So, we're, oh gosh, we're almost out of time. So time management hasn't been so great in this section. But uh, on the face of it, this seems to apply best to behaviour type 3, the kind of becoming a, a better person. Uh, so, the Stoics have got some specific tips about how to improve each of the virtues. Uh, but really, it's, 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 kind of, it's very much based on what I've already said. Uh, remember what you can and can't control. Be mindful all the time of your judgments, and that will then affect your, your emotions up to a point. Uh, and... Uh, and bear in mind that the most important thing is to cultivate these virtues of self-control, justice, love of humanity. I've got to mention the circles of Hierocles because it's a really, really good meditation you can do where you think of yourself, your family, fellow citizens, countrymen, mankind as a whole, and you think of the circles going inwards. So you think of yourself being really closely connected, not just to the people that you naturally love, uh, but even, you know, people who don't know in other countries. That will obviously have some similarity to some 
Buddhist loving kindness practices. Uh, courage and persistence. And again, this thought is just an impression in my mind and not an objective fact. It's rather like acceptance and commitment therapy, isn't it? You say something like, it's just a thought, not a fact. Uh, practical wisdom. So on every occasion when something happens to you, see what capacity you need to deal with it. Think about what virtue you need. So this is the stoicism in a slide. Camera's out. <laughs> uh, uh, what would Marcus Aurelius do? Just kind of a frame of mind, do it? Uh, and, it, and it's not, you know, you might start with seren serenity, uh, what's under my control, then go on to uh, the mindfulness, but you need to also incorporate the virtues as well, uh, and the virtue you need for action. So you might need to be very courageous to, to do something, uh, and very self-controlled to accept. Uh, as we said, you can usually control your emotions. Now, the folks, because they kind of made this technical difference between emotions and proto-emotions, uh, would have maybe said you can always do it. As a therapist, in the question that, that was asked, you know, about the gender differences, I think there may well be gender differences, but I think that for all of us, there are some things beyond our control. Uh, and so, you know, phobias, for instance, I, I wouldn't choose, I wouldn't choose stoicism as a way to overcome a phobia. Although I'm much more of a behavioural and good grade of exposure. Uh, but I think in general, uh, you can go a long way. Uh, to manage your emotions. Uh, we're not going to have time for Basil. We're going to look at Basil as a particularly unstoic. Uh, if you want to do it later, it's on, it's on YouTube. And uh, uh, So this is a summary of how it can be useful to Basil. Uh, you don't go notice of it. Okay, so uh, we're almost at the end where we're just going to get to the Q&A. Uh, can you get that summary? Which one? Uh, the one after Basil. After Basil. After Basil. Okay. That was particularly about, about Basil, but... Uh, okay, sorry. But it's probably more generally applicable as well. It is actually, isn't it? What's, what's beyond my control? Uh, I can't control anything about my character. Uh, in the best version of myself, I would, I, would, I would use the virtues. And how would a stoic behave in this situation? How would Marcus Aurelius behave? It applies to all of us. Uh, So, uh, how did we do? Do you know what stoicism is? Uh, how many of you think it could help you with your behavioural change, stoicism? Maybe you don't know enough about it yet to do it, but you think it's possible. Uh, and CBT or stoicism? Let's just have a count. How many people think, uh, that's back to the for people that arrive late, I ask people to think of three things they'd like to change behaviourally this year. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, that I've already said. Uh, maybe CBT is for emotional behavioural problems. Stoicism is for life. Uh, so, I'm going to ask these questions, but then we'll throw it open. Uh, so, to read on, all the books that I've already got photos of, uh, modernstoicism.com, I blog quite a lot about stoicism, will continue to do so as I edge up from half stoic to three quarters stoic. <laughs> uh, so my questions would be, what do you like about it? Could it help you? Uh, what doubts do you have? Uh, practical questions. Uh, but I'll just ask this before we throw it open. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe I've asked that question about whether CBT or stoicism or whatever kind of things. Uh, 
I want to ask that question, which would you choose? So you've got four options. CBT, Stoicism, both, or, ne or neither. <laughs> so who would choose CBT? Uh, who would choose Stoicism? Who would choose both? Who would choose neither? <laughs> You're such a lovely audience. <laughs> so, uh, so that's uh, uh, oh, look at that photo credits for all those uh, photos. That's being a good Stoic and a good boy. Uh, and uh, uh, well, I'll leave that there so you can do that. But throw it open for questions as well. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, hi, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about what you're talking about in terms of controlling our emotions to a point or usually and what the, the neuroscience um, may be leading us in the direction of. How long have we got? Uh, I, I think that probably the Stokes overemphasise the extent to which by, uh, by being completely rational uh, we can completely change our emotions. Uh, so what Seneca called these first movements were these kind of, you know, there's a loud noise and jump. Uh, and Seneca could say, you know, if someone swore at me, I might well think, uh, you whatever, but then I would remember my stoicisms and say, what's up with Marcus there? Uh, that may well be true. Uh, I, I think, and it is building on what, what the lady said about, about, about uh, you know, changing the body. But if I just think of myself when I'm really tired, just ask my kids, you know, that, that day I was talking about when I mowed the lawn, if I hadn't mowed the lawn and they'd come in, I would have found it really hard to employ this stuff. So I think, back to the five-part model in CBT, we're really focusing on the thinking side of things. And according to CBT, it's also the body as well. And sometimes we've got to make behavioural change uh, to change our thinking. Does that make any sense? Yes. Um, given you know the reported problems on mental health um, for children uh, across the country at the moment, I kind of look at the the Stoic principles as a really good option in the classroom to be able to get children to see things slightly differently. Do you see there being any challenges with trying to bring, say, Stoicism into the classroom? Thank you. What's your name? Uh, Sam. 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 That's a brilliant question. Uh, I don't know if any of you are aware of the works of Pete Morley, who does. Uh, philosophy for children or, or the philosophy uh, shop uh, and I've talked to him about this and he, you have to present the materials at the right level obviously uh, but he, he's, I've actually attended some of his things and it's amazing, it's, you know, amazing that how, how engaged that people can be, kids can be with what we think of as really complex ideas because they've got that curiosity. Uh, so you, you might need to adapt the materials. Uh, I think that's a, I think I think it's a really good idea. Uh, uh, to take a completely different context, uh, in my list of Stoic books, I won't flat flash back there, but there's uh, there's a book, I think it's called The Epictetus Club by I think it's Jeff Trainer about uh, philosophy in prisons, which has definitely happened. It could be another group of people where Stoicism has been employed. 
actually schools and prisons. <laughs> Captive audiences. <laughs> but the idea is that actually uh, you can use your rationality, you can uh, control some things, and this can help you uh, feel freer and even desperate. Yeah, I definitely think that's something to be, to be done. One, one, one last quick one. Last oh, quick one. And you can all, I know we've had a bit of short time for questions, so if you want to grab me a bunch of time or email me, then uh, by all means do so. Uh, I'm very happy. So, yeah, one more question. Hi, thank you very much. Um, that was great. Um, I'm wondering about another area where um, stoicism might help. Politics. Politics. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of some of the politicians around now. I think they could do some stoicism. <laughs> Maybe we could do some stoicism in coping with them. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. What a lovely note to end on. So, uh, just before Donald Trump was, was elected, I did this stoic thing in New York about a stoic negative visualization. What would we do if Trump, Trump got elected? <laughs> And it turns out that, you know, part of it was acceptance, but, you know, people were talking about campaigning and things like that. Uh, but there is a limit to what we can do, and it's a serious note, it is that, uh, uh, yeah, the world is probably a more dangerous place Sorry, than it has so been. You see there's a limit, but, but if we don't have courage, there will be a limit earlier. So we need the courage to... We need the courage. Absolutely. So this is we will be told what to do by undemocratic people. Absolutely. So this is why, thank you, that's a really good point, that Stoicism isn't about, you know, resigning yourself <coughs> to every injustice. And actually I think that, you know, Stoicism is actually saying, uh, think about what you can change, think about how you can make a difference, and use the virtues and wisdom to make it a more just world. We have to end there. Thank you very much.